Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Bourget, and I am coming to you live after a Game 2 win over the Milwaukee Bucks. I guess not live, since you won't be hearing this till the morning. Forgive me, it is about 2 a.m. and we are recording this right now. Um, there's a lot to go over in this series so far. Obviously, the Suns are up 2-0 on the Bucks. They are two wins away from their first ever NBA title, which is obviously very exciting. They've been here before being two wins away from a title and uh, have not been able to seal the deal. But this time they're up two to zero. That's never happened before. And they've just looked like the better team that Milwaukee has zero answers for to this point. So we're going to talk a little bit about why that is. We're going to get into the Sun Star backcourt and how good they've been. We're going to talk about uh, the Mikael Bridges-Chris Middleton matchup that was very noticeable in game two. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, why the Bucks are kind of in a tough spot. Why there might not be a lot for them to change aside from simply just playing better. Um, and maybe that'll be the case with the series shifting to Milwaukee for game three, but we'll see. And then to round things out for our G-rated segment, we'll be talking about a show that came out in May, but uh, was actually something that I really enjoyed binging last month and haven't had a chance to talk about. Uh, that's Marvel's MODOK, which is a stop animation show, stop animation show on Hulu, uh, and would highly recommend checking that out. But we'll get to all that in due time. For starters, let's get off to a good start with Devin Booker and Chris Paul, because in game one, it was really Chris Paul who was the main story. Um, and then in game two tonight, it was, it was Devin Booker. So in game one, Chris Paul had 32 points, nine assists, four rebounds. He shot 12 of 19 from the floor, made four of his seven three-pointers, and was a plus 17 overall. Um, for a guy who had been waiting 16 years to get to this point, he certainly looked like he had been waiting 16 years to get to that point. Like he was phenomenal. He was surgical in the way that he picked apart the Bucks pick and roll defense, uh, whether they were in drop coverage, whether they were switching out onto him. Uh, he just didn't have any problem getting up shots over Brooke Lopez and Lopez unfortunately got kind of a, a bad rep for it because it wasn't really his fault Chris Paul was hitting a lot of good tough shots um, and he kind of took the blame for that like he wasn't contesting them or like he wasn't doing enough to stop them Chris Paul and Devin Booker were just masterful in that regard in game one uh, dominating from the mid-range which is a shot that the Bucks have you know preferred to concede in recent years as opposed to you know they normally like to pack the paint they normally go with drop coverage they normally try to take away the three ball. Um, so once again, another defense that the Suns are just primed to beat in that regard because they have two of the best mid-range players in the game. And I got to say this, for the people that like try to throw it in analytic nerds' faces when mid-range players dominate a game, 
please look up what analytics actually refer to when it comes to basketball, because analytics don't dissuade mid-range jumpers if you have two of the game's best mid-range shooters like Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Like analytics is all about finding out where each individual player shoots best from and trying to maximize those shots. And a lot of the time it comes down to three point shots and shots at the rim, because those are, those yield the best results, uh, especially the corner three and, and shots at the rim. But anyway, I digress going back to our star backcourt here. Um, Devin Booker didn't shoot the ball. Well, he was eight of 21 in game one and only made one of his eight three-pointers, but he also got to the line 10 times, made all 10 of those. Um, And as much as the eight of 29 shooting looks bad, two of those were last second heaves from like half court and three quarters court right before a quarter ended. So, um, you know, he really kind of shot eight of 19. I really feel like the NBA needs to implement the rule where if you shoot it right before the buzzer, it doesn't count, you know, or especially if it's beyond half court, uh, it shouldn't count against your shot total because that's unless you make it because that's just a desperation heave shouldn't reflect on your actual shooting numbers. But anyway, um, Booker had 27 points still because he got to line 10 times. He had six assists and three steals. And he was a really good defensive presence because as much as, you know, people wanted to fixate on, oh, he didn't shoot the ball well and the Bucks defense bothered him. Like he held anyone that he was guarding to one of 11 shooting in game one, which is just phenomenal um, for a finals game, especially for a guy that's been, you know, criticized for his defense. And then in game two, he was the star, you know, he started 0 for four. I think he started two for eight or two for 10. I know he was two for eight at one point, but um he finished his night with 31.6 assists, five rebounds, shot 12 of 25. So after starting two of eight, he shot, what is that, 10 of 17 the rest of the way. He made seven of 12 three-pointers, which is hilarious because up until this postseason, Devin Booker had never made seven three-pointers in a game. And now he's done it twice in his first playoff run. Um, he was a plus 10 overall. Chris Paul was good, actually. I thought I kind of criticized him a little bit because near the end of game two, the Suns kind of got into this weird prevent offense where um, they were just winding down the clock on possession after possession. Devin Booker had hit six or seven threes by that point, and they weren't feeding him. They weren't moving on offense. Uh, Chris Paul was just kind of dribbling out the clock there and and settling for contested mid-range shots contested pull-up jumpers and and the Bucks defense locked in a little bit but the Suns really weren't making them work at all just trying to wind down clock um, and that kind of inadvertently opened the door for the Bucks to push back to within six within the final four or five minutes there um, so I didn't think it was a very good game for Chris Paul he had a couple of turnovers in that stretch as well but then you look at the box score and he still finished with 23 points eight assists four rebounds shot 10 of 20 from the field and three of five from three point range and was a plus nine overall. So even on a night where Chris Paul wasn't great down the stretch in the fourth quarter, where he's been so good for the Suns and where he kind of deserves the benefit of the doubt to have the ball in his hands in those scenarios. um, It wasn't really his night, but he still wound up having a good night overall. So for the series through two games, these are small sample sizes, but through the series, Chris Paul is averaging 27 and a half points, eight and a half assists, four rebounds. He's shooting 56% from the field and 58% from three. 
and he's a plus 26 overall. Devin Booker for the series is at 29 points, six assists, three and a half rebounds. He's shooting 43 and a half percent from the field and 40% from three, and he's a plus 28 overall. So, you know, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. The Suns still need two games to close out this series. But as of right now, if you're looking at finals MVP odds, it's pretty even like Booker has the edge in scoring. Chris Paul has the edge in assists and in rebounds and obviously in efficiency. So he's probably got the edge, especially because he's got that narrative on his side. This would probably be his only chance to win a finals MVP unless the Suns are just as good next year. Um, but that's, that is something to keep an eye on because they're both putting up great numbers right now. And, you know, these, these small sample sizes can swing drastically with the course of one game. Um, but a couple of interesting facts. So the Suns, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker, that backcourt has combined for 113 points through the first two games. And according to ESPN Stats and Info, that's the most by a starting backcourt in finals history dating back to 1971, which is when uh, they started keeping track of who was starting. So basically the most by a starting backcourt in NBA history that we're aware of. Um Booker also joined Stephen Curry, Ray Allen, and Kyrie Irving as the only players in finals history to score 30-plus points and make seven-plus three-pointers in a game. Booker was the 11th player in finals history to make seven or more three-pointers in a finals game. Um, and he only needs, what is it, 31 more points to pass Rick Barry for the most points scored during a player's first playoff run. Um, so he's at 490 after game two. Rick Barry's at 520 in first place, and Julius Irving is at 518 in second place. So even if the Suns sweep, Devin Booker only needs to average like 16 points over the next two games <laughs> to get there and get that record, which is incredible. You know, it goes to show that a lot of players in their first playoff run obviously don't make the finals. So that's working in his favor. But, um, you know, for all of those who are questioning whether Devin Booker was built for this moment, he absolutely is fucking built for this moment based on some of those numbers. Um, he also has four 35-5 games, uh, so 30 points, five assists, five rebounds, which trails Charles Barkley, who has five such games for the most all time. He's got four um, after game two, which is just incredible because, again, this is only his first playoff run. There will probably be many more to come after this. Um, and he's only shooting 43% from the series for the, from the floor for the series. But again, his defense has been phenomenal. And uh, you know, we got to give Chris Paul a lot of credit too, because he's been great in his own regard as well. Um, you know, according to synergy, Chris Paul created assisted or scored on 61 points in both game six of the conference finals and game one of the finals. So in back-to-back -back games, he created, scored, or assisted on 61 of the team's points, um, which is just incredible. He scored 73 points over that two-game span, which is tied for the most in any two-game span over the course of his career. He joined Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Tim Duncan as the only players 36 and above to drop 30-plus points in a finals game. Um, and he's the first player with at least 30 points and eight assists in their finals debut since Michael Jordan all the way back in 1991, so 30 years ago. Um, so Chris Paul, Devin Booker have both been phenomenal. They're part of the reason why the Suns are now 13-0 and 0 
when they've led by at least 10 points in a playoff game this this postseason run um, because they're just so composed. They just hit big shots. Devin Booker, again, he wasn't efficient in game one, but he played a great game because he hit a lot of timely buckets when the Bucks were trying to come back. Same deal in the second half of game two. Um, it was just more noticeable because he was bearing three after three and just really heated up after that slower start. So um, really great start for the Suns backcourt. That'll be something to keep an eye on moving forward because if they continue to be this dominant against the Bucks and they have no way of stopping them, it's hard to see how Milwaukee makes this a series unless all of their guys start going off as well. Which brings us to our next point, Mikael Bridges versus Chris Middleton. It's a really fun matchup, especially because Bridges – ceiling has been compared to that of Chris Middleton a lot of the time um, you know he's compared to those lanky two-way players who can defend and also hit shots off the dribble Middleton is a mid-range gunner he's really efficient from three-point range when you look at Mikhail Bridges and his all-star potential Middleton is a guy that comes to mind Kevin Durant is a very distant lofty goal when you think of Bridges, but Chris Middleton's the one that usually gets brought up. So it's kind of cool to see them facing off in a final series. And it's especially cool if you're a Suns fan, because so far after game two, at least Bridges has the upper hand now, um, you know, in game one, Middleton won that round. He had 29.7 rebounds, four assists. He shot 12 of 26 from the floor, made five of his 12 three pointers. Um, you know, that obviously, is a lot better than what Bridges did. He had 14 points, shot five of 13 from the floor and two of four from three-point range. So again, you know, Middleton is a two-time all-star. He's an all-NBA caliber player, Um, you know, just a two-way force for a legitimate championship contender over there in Milwaukee. He's a really great player. Bridges has a more reduced role than being the number two guy. Like that's what Middleton is for the Bucks, and that he was the number one guy for those two games where Giannis was out um, against the Atlanta Hawks. But Bridges is more of a third, fourth, even fifth option on some nights. Um, So he's not going to put up those same type of numbers, get those same type of um, shot attempts that Middleton does. But in game two, it didn't matter. Bridges was like head and shoulders above Middleton in game two. Um, So Bridges had a playoff career high, 27.7 rebounds. He made eight of his 15 shots. Uh, He only went three of nine from three-point range, but he helped ice the game from the free throw line. He went a perfect eight of eight overall. Um, And Middleton really struggled. He had 11 points, eight assists, six rebounds, but he only shot five of 16 from the floor and one of six from three-point range. So, you know, on one fewer shot attempt than Middleton got, Bridges outscored Middleton by 16 points which is pretty good, especially since Bridges was guarding Middleton for most of the way. So if you look at their numbers for the series, Bridges has actually been a smidge better. He's averaging 20 and a half points, uh, shooting 46% from the field and almost 42% from three. Middleton is now down to 20 points per game. He's shooting under 41% from the field and 33.3% from three-point range. So you know, again, we're dealing with tiny sample sizes here, two game sample sizes, that script could totally flip with uh, the series shifting to Milwaukee now, where, you know, you would expect guys like Middleton and Drew Holiday to be a little bit more comfortable. But 
it is incredible to see, you know, a 24 year old Mikhail Bridges going toe to toe with Middleton through these first two games to see how, you know, he's, he's maximizing his role. We've talked about that a lot with Deandre Ayton, Mikhail Bridges, isn't going to get a ton of shots. He's not going to get a ton of touches, but in game two, especially he's really made the most of them. He's been pretty good for the sun since game six of the conference finals. And, and that was a series that he really struggled in. Um, but, you know, listening to Monty talk about him and, and his, you know, how he had a rough series, um, he did have one interesting thing to say about, you know, reps producing results. I tell our guys to go hoop. You know, I don't want them thinking about their shots or whatever may be deemed as a struggle. Um, when you put the work in the way these guys have and, and – We've trusted them all season long. Um, when a guy struggles in the playoffs, I, I don't want to get in his head. If anything, I want him to continue to shoot. And and um, we, we have a saying, reps removed out. You know, if you get your work in, uh, you can trust your work. So I love this quote from Monty because, you know, reps removed out is a classic Montyism. It's one that we don't hear as much compared to some of his other more popular ones, but it perfectly applies to Mikael Bridges, who was having a ho-hum postseason. You know, he wasn't shooting the ball great. Um, he wasn't shooting the ball poorly, but it was really down. I think he shot like 42.5% from three during the regular season, and that was down to about like 36% or something, 35% during the playoffs until these finals started. Uh, he had a really rough series against the Clippers. I think he shot like 23 or 24% from three. He was averaging less than nine points per game. Those numbers were all down from what he put up in the regular season. And then in game six, he started cutting a little bit more. Um, and Mikael Bridges said after the game that, you know, he's had his teammates in his ear, especially Etwan Moore, about like, hey, if you're not hitting threes, like attack the basket, get to the mid-range, you know, get to easier spots. Um, which is something that Bridges kind of had to snap out of and realize like, okay, hitting a three might not get me going, but I can do these other things. And we saw that a lot in game two because he hit a couple of early ones. He only shot three for nine, but after he hit those couple of early ones, the Bucks had to start running him off the line. And he made them pay for doing that by pulling up in that mid range, um, even getting to the rim on, on one key sequence where he and Aiton combined for that for two offensive rebounds back to back that ended in Chris Paul hitting a big three. And then the Bucks came charging back down. Aiton got the block. Bridges got the save. They went down the court and then Bridges attacked a closeout off the dribble and had this nice up and under move um, to kind of cap off this mini run that helped put the game away. So it really is cool to see Bridges, you know, trusting the work like Monty Williams is talking about. He's been working on that mid-range shot, on being able to attack off the dribble for a long time. Bridges has said himself that he started doing that his freshman year at Villanova um, just because he didn't play a lot and he didn't shoot very well. So he had to find ways to score through cutting off the dribble. And we're seeing that come to life on basketball's biggest stage, which is really cool because we've seen him do it throughout the season. And now we're starting to see it in the playoffs again. Um so, you know, reps removed out. We all had our doubts about Mikael Bridges shooting when he had that ugly hitch in his shot as a rookie. He got rid of that. He started shooting. He started trending in the more positive direction. I think he shot like 36% from three last year. Then this year, up to almost 43% from three. 
you know, putting in the work, it's producing the results and we're seeing it on the NBA final stage, which is awesome because getting a Mikel Bridges game in the finals is huge for this team. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to also address the other side of the coin, which for the Bucks is that they're kind of in trouble. And I think that shifting back to Milwaukee could help them playing in front of their home crowd will help some of the role players. Um, but they really need a lot more out of Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. And I'm not sure what adjustments Mike Budenholzer can make in that regard. And I, I kind of feel bad for Bud because, you know, heading into this series, we all knew that Monty Williams was really good at making game to game adjustments. Like he's very good. He's got a great coaching staff. He has the trust of his players and vice versa. The players have ranted and raved about how this coaching staff always has them prepared on a game to game basis. And that's kind of like the inverse opposite of what you, you would think when you think of Mike Budenholzer, like this is a guy that, you know, just last year wasn't playing his starters enough in do or die playoff games who wasn't adjusting, who was either incapable or stubborn about adjusting. And, you know, in game two, I thought he actually did a good job of making adjustments, you know, like after game one, the Suns really picked apart the Bucks defense in the pick and roll, like Chris Paul and Devin Booker were surgical, um, whether the Bucks were switching or whether they were in drop coverage, the Suns were finding a way to make them pay from the mid range. And there just wasn't a lot to be done. They couldn't contain those two. So what do you do in game two? Okay. You put Drew Holiday on Chris Paul. You have him hound him all the way up the court. You have him put pressure on those ball handlers in the pick and roll. Don't let them get comfortable you know, chase them all over these screens and then have your strong side wing defenders kind of hedge in towards the middle and, and clog their passing lanes. Like we saw, you know, the LA Lakers and the LA Clippers do in those series as well. But when you do that, you open yourself up to the potential ball movement that Chris Paul and Devin Booker can generate in those situations where you're going to get an open three. You're going to find Cam Johnson. You're going to find Mikael Bridges. You're going to find Jay Crowder open for three and that's kind of what we saw you know obviously Devin Booker hitting seven threes contributed to it but it wasn't just Booker that was tearing them apart you know you it was kind of a death by a thousand cut situation where all of the Sun shooters were making them pay um, the Sun shot 20 for 40 from three-point range and those 23s that they made are the most in franchise playoff history and it's only the third time in finals history that a team made 20 plus three pointers. So, you know, I don't really know what Mike Budenholzer can do from here uh, tactically. That's going to make much of a difference because the Suns team can just beat you in so many ways. Like, you know, Booker came to life near the end, but for the most part, for most of the game, it was some of the role players stepping up, especially like Mikhail Bridges, that was that was really hurting the Bucks. Like Giannis went off for 42 points, I think, in game two. And DeAndre Ayton had a terrible game until the last couple of minutes when he sort of came to life after Monty's, um, you know, wonderful pep talk on the sideline. If you haven't seen that video, you need to go watch it because just another example of why Monty should have won coach of the year, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but Ayton really didn't have a good game for the most part in game two. Uh, Devin Booker wasn't shooting the ball well early on. Chris Paul was kind of quiet early on as well. And then he wasn't great down the stretch. So all of these things were conspiring to, you know, 
give Milwaukee a shot to even the series. Giannis went to the line, I think, 18 times and made 11 of them, actually. Um, but it still just wasn't enough because this Suns team has so many different ways that it can beat you. And you're either going to give up the mid-range in that pick and roll or you're going to plan for it and you're going to wind up giving up threes off the ball rotation. Like there was that one play that ended in the DeAndre Ayton uh, and one at the basket where the ball was passed, I think, 11 times. Uh, and the Bucks were on top of it. They were rotating. They were switching. You know, they were communicating. They were d- getting deflections on that very possession. They almost got two turnovers on that same play. But the Suns were just better. Like, it was great defensive rotations, but the ball movement was better, and it eventually found its way in the hole. And those types of plays can be demoralizing because that's just the type of team the Suns team is. They don't have a lot of weaknesses. They don't make a lot of mistakes, and they will punish you when you make mistakes. So um, it's a tough one because it really might just come down to Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton needing to play better, like tactically – the Bucks are doing all that they can. Mike Budenholzer made adjustments in game two. It didn't matter. Um, Holiday in particular has to be better. He's only averaging 13 and a half points. He's shooting 31% from the field and 14% from three. And again, I know these are small sample sizes, but through these playoffs, uh, Drew Holiday's efficiency is around where Eric Bledsoe's was, both from the field. I think they're identical. He's shooting a little bit better from three-point range. Um, but it's still like 20 some percent or maybe 30 some percent, but it's bad. Um, And he's shooting worse from the free throw line. I think he's only shooting like 60 some percent, 67% from the foul line, which is just terrible because they paid a lot of money to bring him to Milwaukee to be that third option to replace Bledsoe. I don't know if that position is just cursed for Milwaukee in the playoffs or what, but Uh, They need a lot more out of him with this series shifting back to Milwaukee. Um, And they're already in a hole because historically, you know, teams that fall behind, or I guess teams that go up two to zero in the finals go on to win the series 31 out of 35 times historically. So only four teams have ever come back from a 2-0 deficit in the finals. That's the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers. That's the 2006 Miami Heat the 1977 Portland Trailblazers and the 1966 Boston Celtics. So it's done. It's been done twice in the last 15 years, which I guess is encouraging, but you know, one of those required a really crazy refereeing job on Dwayne Wade for the heat to come back and beat the Dallas Mavericks in that series. The other one was the Cavs, which is one of the most improbable comebacks in NBA history where they came back from three, one. And uh, you know, that, Honestly, that took a Draymond Green suspension. That took an Andrew Bogut injury. That took a lot for that to happen. So uh, the Bucks are in scary territory already. If they fall down 3-0 in game three, they're done for because no team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit. And, you know, honestly, the Suns team is too good. They're too good at closing out games. They've been in up 3-0 in a series before. They've been up 2-0 in a series before and they've just destroyed it from there. So Milwaukee is in a do or die situation in game three. They need their number two and their number three guys to actually show up because tactically, I'm not sure what more Mike Budenholzer can do when this Suns team is just so versatile and can beat you in so many ways. But we're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So to wrap up this episode, we are coming at you with the latest G rated segment, 
for Marvel's Modoc, which is a stop motion comedy on, I keep saying stop motion, stop animation comedy on Hulu. Um, it came out uh, actually on my birthday in back in May, uh, a few months ago, and I didn't get around to it. I actually had one of my friends from back home who was a listener in the show, shout out Brian Sullivan, uh, recommend it to me. And I'm glad that he did because it had been on my list, but I wasn't sure how to feel about it because in all honesty, I've never been a fan of shows like Robot Chicken or any of those kind of stop animation shows. Like I used to watch Wallace and Gromit growing up because that's what they would put on when it was movie day in school. But like, other than that, I didn't really care for that style of animation. And I'm glad that he recommended it to me because I really enjoyed it. So it, it revolves around the main character, Modoc, who is, uh, Modoc stands for mechanized organism designed only for killing. If you're unfamiliar with the Marvel comic books, Modoc is one of its greatest, most devious villains. He's like this evil mastermind who's very weird looking. He's like half man, half robot, um, half potato is what he's shaped like. Honestly, it's, it's a weird situation, but um, he has all of these dangerous weapons that he can pull out and use to his advantage. And he's also just kind of like this living computer sort of deal. Um, so the show is kind of a humorous take on that and his attempts to take over the world, despite not being a very good supervillain. Um, but it's also about like his family life and kind of his general short-sightedness and self-centered ways and how they kind of manifest um, their toxicity, basically. Um, because at heart, he, you know, was just kind of neglected and picked on and was basically told that what he wanted to be was a supervillain. So it's an interesting spin on that. Um but Patton Oswalt, who plays Modoc, is really great in this role. Like he makes Modoc quippy and and he's kind of a jerk, but he's also he retains that sentimental value and he's still kind of relatable. Um, and his one-liners are fantastic. Um, but Patton Oswalt is great in everything that he does when it comes to this type of stuff. But so is Melissa Fumero, who you might know from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She's Santiago. And then uh, she plays his wife. And then Ben Schwartz from Parks and Rec uh, is fantastic as his son, Lou, who is just like the best zaniest weird little boy character of all time. It, it's great. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it seems like it's a little off-putting because of the animation thing. I know a lot of people don't really care for animated shows, especially ones that look like they're like, you know, stop animation made out of clay. Um, and I didn't really care for Robot Chicken. Um, but this is good. Like Seth Green, who was all robot chicken, uh, is a co-executive producer here. And the show has some really great like one-liners and a couple of solid Marvel references, but you don't have to be like a huge Marvel fan to enjoy it because it doesn't really revolve around any of the Avengers or any of the superheroes. It's it's very much set based on Modoc and and the characters that are in his orbit, his family his co-workers, um, you know, Iron Man makes a couple of frequent appearances, but it's not anything like overindulgent to where you you feel like you're watching a Marvel show. It feels like it's set within the Marvel universe at times, but it's, it's a very different take on that because it is crude. It is funny. It's irreverent. Um, 
but it, it never gets too vulgar either. Like it's it's definitely an adult animated show, but it never gets too terrible to where you're, you know, kind of cringing watching it. Um, and, it and it's good because it makes Modok into this, you know, weird looking but complex character. And a lot of his family members and, and friends are similarly complex as the show gets deeper. It takes a couple episodes to get good and to get, you know, kind of find its groove. But that's, you know, most shows like this, especially animated ones in their first season that are just kind of weird concepts like this as it is. Um, but it has really great like running gags and, and a few funny storylines. And, um, you know, it, like I said, it takes a while to iron out some of the kinks, but it feels like it's on pace to become one of those like quirky and clever animated shows that will also occasionally like stab you right in the feels. Like I love those shows, BoJack. Horseman is one of my favorites in that regard. Rick and Morty is really good at that kind of genre. Um, this show has a ways to go before it's anywhere near that type of territory, but it was an entertaining season one. It's only 10 episodes and the episodes are like 25 minutes long. So it's a relatively quick binge if you're looking for something to pass the time uh, in between days of these final games. Um, you know, I, I would definitely recommend it. It hasn't been renewed for season two, but hopefully that changes soon because it's just so different from the rest of Marvel's IP and it's kind of refreshing how it's like crude and funny and new, unique, you know, especially with like the animation and just what they're going for here is different. So I enjoyed it. Um, for my final G rating, I'm going to give this a 7.5 out of 10. It's not fantastic yet, but I feel like it's going to get better as it goes along and hopefully it'll be back for season two in the near future. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please write me a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. Tell your friends, subscribe. But until next time, this is Gerald Bourget signing off.